This episode was originally a live stream on YouTube. You could find out about all my content and how to follow and support me at erichunley.com. I hope to hear from you. And now, on with the show. My name is Eric Hunley, and this is Unstructured, where we have dynamic and formal conversations with some amazing people. I'm all in place. All right. We are back with Christina Babin. Hasn't been that long, so no. welcome back. Thanks. And hopefully that means that everything's fresh in your head and you'll just immediately pick up where you <laughs> left off, right? Kind of, sort of. Um, yeah. Uh, I wanted to get started with answering a question that you gave last time uh, okay. that I feel like I didn't really answer. Or All right. little backstory, though, in case people didn't see the first episode, um, we'll go ahead and do that. Christina was not born into, but close enough to uh, the Children of God organization, which has been called a cult. So when we refer to it as a cult, that is generally known as a cult. So allegedly all the legalese, mealy mouth terms. Um, she was telling us her life up into a certain point in the cult because she spent really her entire life until adulthood in this cult. So we, we don't want to uh, shortchange everything that's going on. So we left off um, wanting to continue with the story and try to get some questions in, but I guess I left you with a question that I don't recall. What was that? Uh, yeah. Well, I mean, we, we kind of dealt with it, but not really. Um, I don't think I was really clear. Um, you had asked about freedom of speech and freedom of religion mm -hmm. and um, kind of how that applied to me saying that, you know, basically the government failed us. <laughs> mm -hmm. And um, so I, I wanted to clarify that um, I'm a big fan of freedom of speech and freedom of religion. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, the, the Supreme court said that the federal government can limit freedom of religion but only when there's a compelling interest. And that's in order to protect people from harm. Uh, it's very, mm. very clear. And the same with freedom of speech. Like it's, it's a pretty big umbrella and we like it that way. The only time that freedom of speech has limitations is when you're inciting violence and oh, not just saying. I, I would just argue that it's not a protected thing when it's no longer speech. A call yes. to action is not speech. Right. When it moves from thoughts example. to action, and that's in regard specifically to violence or harm to others. Sure. So technically, or, or even say, a, Or even a, I could be sitting at the bill, uh, like a bullhorn and, and yelling in your ear, causing hearing damage. And that is no, that starts to cross over to into an assault yes. versus speech. So I, I'm sorry. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, you know, we know that you can have crazy, crazy beliefs. You could believe in human sacrifice and mm -hmm. speak about it. And as long as you are just speaking about it, then uh, we we give you that right. The difference mm -hmm. is when you start training people how to do human sacrifices, you produce pamphlets on how to, and you start saying, you all need to do this. That's when you are crossing the line. Now, uh, you did not do that, though. Correct? No, no. <laughs> I was going to no. say, oh, I hope we're being hyperbolic at no, least. I, mean, the, I would have the, been the one of the first people to get sacrificed in that case. <laughs> it's okay, been like, okay. let's get rid of her. Uh, yes, Just want to clarify. Right, right. Well, <laughs> so one thing that is like, you know, kind of, I guess there's so much to talk about when it comes to this group. Um, mm -hmm. But the founder not only discussed his preferences when it came to pedophilia and prostitution, he and his top leadership then produced documents and books showing how to do this, who to do it to, how to get away with it, and mass produce these and sent them out to the world. So this I would is argue from... What I've seen too that he actually produced um we call it CP on YouTube, so we don't get flagged. But let's just say illegal, illicit material 
representing children in a position, I believe. Yes. It would fall under that category of CP. Yes. Yes. And uh, that is not um, under the umbrella of free speech. So that's a crime. Yes. Yeah. So I just want to make clear that we're not talking about we're not discussing whether or not freedom of speech and freedom of religion is a thing. We are talking about actual crimes against children, against people. That's what we're discussing. We're not discussing whether or not we should go raid people's houses and stop their weird, whatever their religious beliefs yeah. are. So I just want right. to make that clear. And I feel like I I get kind of, you know, certain things I get kind of feisty about. And I'm just, you know, I just wanted to explain. Where I was going with it was I was saying it's a challenge for them to reveal this sometimes in terms of infiltrating the church is causing some major constitutional problems. And maybe that would be the only way to handle it. But sometimes it's hard to reveal this stuff because if nobody's talking and they say, hey, I'm a church, you know, you have to get the information out there. And when you get into touchy things like freedom of religion and stuff like that, it can get a little bit harder. I mean, there there is a, um, a church called uh, Scientology that's mm-hmm. very, very controversial. Yeah. Some would say it's not even a religion, but they did get that status by the government and they have continued to function, make money, all kinds of stuff. And I think that there is a, a genuine challenge where you get kind of where the government gets caught up in a constitutional snare. So, yes, they did fail you. No question. But I kind of understand a little bit how it could happen, too. Does that make sense? Well, I agree with you, but not in the way you're saying. There is a way that it's understandable that it happened, um, but mm-hmm. not for those reasons. Because, again, I'm going to reiterate. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I don't know if you've ever read On Liberty by John Stewart Hill. Mill. Um, no, and no. Uh, the harm no. principle. Like we use that a lot when we talk about freedom of speech. And yeah, yeah. Um, you're right. Stop at my nose. And Yeah, yeah. And uh, when it comes to harming children, those rules don't apply. Totally agree. You know, so when it comes when it comes to, you know, I want to be very careful in saying like that it's not a freedom of speech issue. It's not a freedom of religion issue. They did not. Um, come after us to protect us because we were in other countries because which gets hard there was was jurisdiction uh issues there were issues of uh just the names you know we didn't know who our abusers were there there it it is complicated and Mm um and And you had people you had people who knew how to work the system too I mean, right. You know, I mean, I would yeah. imagine experts who knew exactly how to skirt the line, um, you know, through politics and other means that, you know, yeah. <laughs> well, we were, this was, this was actually the biggest conspiracy when it comes to training and fooling the public and the authorities that has ever been known, like in mm. modern history. These were thousands and thousands of children. We were trained in military fashion to withstand stress, to answer the authorities when they came. We did mock practice uh, raids on our communes. We did practice court cases. We did practice media performances. We rehearsed. And not only that, in our day-to-day life, we were not allowed to show stress. We had to smile we had to be articulate. So it, it, it really was a massive conspiracy. And I don't think that's something that uh, to this day that our government has ever dealt with on such a massive scale. So uh, I don't think I don't think it was really known what was going on. You know, now I will say uh, when the world finally did start taking notice and a lot of the communes were raided. Yes, the children were very well trained and they did not detect stress on the children. Didn't surprise any of us. We knew what we were doing. Uh, we didn't play. We practiced rehearsing. There were no toys. Can you there describe no- how, how the training take place? I mean, I, I, I hate to do it, but I'd love to hear a training session or what, what would be an example of a session, you know, rather than about it, 
Like, what would be an example? Would it be, and I'm speculating, so, you know, please correct me, but you would be out hustling to get money because you said you had to beg all day and you had kind of minders when you were out asking um, for funds. Yeah. Were they training you at that point saying, um, if they ask you a question, here's this. If they do this, ask that. If you do this, do that. So, I mean, please explain it all. Like I said, I'm throwing out speculation. Yeah. So it was a uh, constant training. Uh, the world, anybody outside of our commune was an enemy. So every conversation was not only monitored, it was scripted. So if you went off of script, you would be in trouble. So it would be, here's what you say. If the country that we were in was a non-English country, that was really good for them because they would teach us how to say, please help with a donation in Japanese or, you know, mm. whatever. And so we kind of didn't get taught much more than that. And so that was kind of easy. But if you ran into a foreigner, then you would get debriefed like, okay, you know, you said too much there. Next time, don't answer that question. You don't have to answer those questions. Remember, they can report us to the authorities. These are not our friends. Uh, it's dangerous. So then when it came to like the mock court cases or the mock raids, uh, we lived every day in fear of being raided, being killed, being, uh, you know, well, it's actually going to be brought to justice and rescued, but we didn't know that. So you had okay, to have I what we call a flea bag. So all hmm. of your possessions had to be packed every night, ready to go. Kind what? Like a bug out kit. Oh, I don't know what it's, that is. Uh, well, preppers call it that or whatever. It's <laughs> like a backpack with you know everything relevant to yeah. you to where you can just pick yeah. up and, and, and get out. Yeah, everything except for our passports because our passports were confiscated. Uh, they always kept those. So we didn't That's have passports. So running away was problematic for all of us kids because anybody who tried, what were you going to do? You didn't even have your passport. Um, By the way, I'm go I got to interrupt on that because this is important. That's human trafficking 101. Yes. Is to make sure that you seize the passport of any individual you have. And that is how a lot of um, victims are, are brought in. They're offered a job. They get to work on a cruise ship or Disney or whatever it might be. And, they get the passport, they come here to the States, the passport is seized, and they now have to pay for the passport to get out of it. So yeah, I apologize, but I'm just, I'm just saying you're, yeah, thank you. you're That's following good. A, a great tradition. Yes, yes. it's uh, <laughs> There's no doubt we were being trafficked. So you had your flea bag packed every night. Uh, the founder would be sending letters and uh, discussing, okay, Here's what the world thinks of us. Here's how we need to answer. Here's how they're wrong, but here's the correct way to answer them. Then the adults would uh, wake us up in the middle of the night yelling, oh, there's, you know, they're after us. They're here to get us. Everybody get up and go. Sometimes they would pretend to shoot and kill us. And we had to pretend like we were dying. Um, and then they would like bring us into the living room and interrogate us. And we had to practice either not answering their questions or simply going on to script and trying to witness to them and tell them about Jesus and not answer any of their questions. Okay. That brings me to another question and sorry to jump all over the place, but these um, middle of the night drills make me think they're very handy for sleep deprivation as a cause. Did you guys I'm trying to put this the right way. Were you malnourished and kept sleep deprived? Because those are also two very helpful techniques for mind control. And I'm I'm wondering if this was part of that now that you're looking back. Yeah, I think that's an excellent question. And um, I've looked into that and uh, talked around to a lot of other survivors. And um, you're correct that that is a very common tactic used in mind control and thought reform programs. Uh, our cults really did not um, with the sleep deprivation. We were, we all had to stay under a certain weight. Like you had to be very, very skinny, but they were not starving us. We always had like what basically what we needed. You might miss a meal here or there. They would make you fast. So they would do like sleep deprivation and fasting 
when you were in trouble or um, they needed you to be more pliable. But overall, they didn't do a lot of that. It was only very specific times. Okay. Okay. I was just, um, yeah, I'm wondering. And, and, you know, a, a lot of this, by the way, is common. Okay. I, I was in the army and I went through basic training and they call it basic indoctrination training. Yeah. It is mind control put on mm-hmm. by the, so yeah. it's not always an evil thing. There are reasons that it can be done. It's not evil. It's obviously evil in a cult sense, but I'm just saying, and that guess what? You would have a drill sergeant, bang, bang, get up, get, get up, you know, and, you know, throwing things at you or well, whatever. And and you were always kept in this just state of, of frazzlement. Yeah. And but the, I can the, see where that's useful. Right. For. Well, it's useful. And um, a part of the reason the military does it, too, is to acclimate you to stress and mm-hmm. help your mind and your body be able to function when things are difficult. And, you know, that's what you need. You don't need soldiers that are, you know, freaking out whenever adversity happens. So the same thing was done to us. We were actually told we were in an army, that we were soldiers. Uh, If you were in a larger compound, then you actually marched like soldiers. Uh, I've seen some of the videos. Are those accurate? (laughs) Yes. Where they go with the singing too? Yeah. I'm in one of them. Very cheesy. You are in one. God, we were cheesy. Oh yeah, so cheesy. <laughs> which, <laughs> no, which is we were not scary. cool at all. <laughs> but I mean, that's what's scary about it is it has this like Brady Bunch vibe, like you know, a Brady Bunch High School Musical vibe, that yeah. everybody's marching and happy, right. and then you're well, like, and you're, oh, you're always really happy. Yeah, it, it was Ugh. it was unending happiness, unending smiles, and. Um, that that was also practiced. And if you didn't have a smile on your face, you were automatically targeted. You know, what's what is wrong with you? What's your attitude? You know, you might you would get in trouble. Uh, so you just you constantly smiled. And we know that smiling actually releases endorphins and makes you <laughs> makes you feel better. So that worked really well. You start smiling and you feel a little bit better. So. Uh, yeah, but it was just this cheesy, constant happiness that we always had to show. Yeah. So. And that's how you recruit it, too, right? Is you mm-hmm. would find vulnerable people and you'd be so warm. Yeah. Just so friendly and unabashed about it. I, yeah. I can see where somebody who feels down um and old drill sergeant, yes, he, he is correct. Uh, basic training is a play. The drill sergeants are actors. The troops are participating audience. Absolutely. Absolutely. And and some of that, too, getting into the military sense is you do a lot of stupid shit. Excuse my language. But a lot of it is just so you buy road ant, you know, you just say, yes, sergeant, no, sergeant, yes, sergeant. No, it, it's, it's made deliberately because you don't want to think too much for yourself in the military to where the sergeant says, duck, what do you mean? And you just got right. shot in the head. Yeah. So yeah. There, there, is a, there is a reason for some of it. But anyway, to uh, move back to that, cheesiness can actually be infectious. Mm-hmm. I, and I I want to get into it. I don't think we talked a lot about, um, first off, we were going to go into the behavior panel bit and how you would be reading body language for the yeah. purpose of of both flirty fishing and just flat out to get money or recruit. So I want to give you the floor. Can you talk about how you would go about reading, I would say your marks and their difference between a, um, a cult and a con man. And I'm saying, man, it can be both, but the difference between a cult leader and a con man is that a con man moves around and cons mm-hmm. different people, and a cult leader keeps conning the same people. Yes. But anyway, yes, exactly. I would say that you guys were conning potentially marks. So how would you go about it, and can you describe? Right. So um, there are two, two ways in which uh, body language was used. Um, one was me personally, and that was for my own safety and protection from the adults. And that's where it's more the micro expressions and also 
the things that they'd say, and we can get into that later. Um, we were taught when it came to outsiders to watch their behavior, uh, watch whether their shoulders were slouched, whether they were, uh, did they have a look of, you know, unhappiness on their face or boredom? Uh, were they reading a book? Were they with somebody? If they were alone, you kind of, you know, that person was definitely a mark because they're, they're alone. Uh, they don't have somebody with them. So, you know, they're lonely. Perfect. Yeah. Describe the ideal mark. That's a good one. Mm. Who was the ideal? Like you're, you're walking along and you're like, Ooh, got one. What uh, would they look like? Okay. Um, Typically, we targeted the opposite sex than us. So if you were a male, you targeted a female. If you were a female, you targeted a male. Um, you looked to see if they looked wealthy. So if they had money, if they were well-dressed, uh, then they were you know, automatically somebody we wanted to talk to. If they looked like mm. they were poor or had some kind of mental illness, they were off the list. You, know, you, didn't, you didn't approach them. Um, and like I said, if they looked unhappy, bored, if they looked aimless, you know, if they were just sitting on a park bench and not really, you know, they're not reading a book or they're not, you know, on the phone or, well, we didn't have cell phones back then, but it was just kind yeah. of, if they had like an aimless, you know, just looking up into the sky or looking down or, you know, just nothing too complicated, but as children, we were kind of looking for that, you know, and it does, if he has a business suit, yeah, go for it for sure. And then so how uh, would you approach, I, I'm sitting on a bench and I'm kind of looking mildly perplexed and depressed. How would you approach me at, at different points, too? Because as a child, I imagine, excuse me, as a child, you would probably approach me one way. And then as you got older, you might approach me another way. I don't know. It was the same. It was the same. So, so oh, really? it would be, uh, uh, I, I would walk up to you, you know, depending on, it wouldn't matter what age I was. I'd be like, Hey, hello. My name is Christina. What is your name? And I would touch your shoulder and I would look into your eyes and I'd be like, what's your name? And you'd be like, Oh, uh, Eric. <laughs> and I'd be like, Oh, I, I have something to tell you about. I'm really excited to tell you about this. And I'd usually pull something out uh, and I would be like, oh, look, we're missionaries and we come from foreign countries and we're here to talk to you about Jesus. And do you know that he really loves you? He loves you so much and we love you too. And it would just kind of go on like that. And eventually I'd get you to, I would hold your hand and get you to pray with me. And then I would ask you for money. <laughs> Hmm. Now, and, okay, this, did everybody bite on this? Or, I mean, you know, th there's going to be some people who are a little more like, uh, that's nice. And did you just wear them down, some people? Or how, I, how would that go? No, because uh, so we called people sheets, sheeps or goats. So a sheep was somebody who was interested, <laughs> and a goat was somebody who was not. And if they were a goat, you tried to get the fuck away from them really fast. Uh, but most people were pretty nice. You know, we were always very clean looking, very personable. Sometimes we had guitars and we would just, you know, if you were sitting alone on a bench park, we might sing for you. You know, the, the uncle or our keeper would have the guitar and he'd be playing and I'd come sit down by you and hold your hand and sing you a song. So we're serenading yeah. you. It's very touchy, very touchy feely, a lot of smiles. It's creepy, <laughs> but we're also little kids or very right. feminine women. You know, there's nothing threatening about us whatsoever. Right. So now how, how would the men do it with women though? Because now that, that gets huge creep factor, if you go the other way. Yeah. So in the beginning, uh, I think the men actually did a lot of recruiting to get women into the cult. A lot of, mm. uh, older aunties would say that they fell in love with these men and they felt because they did the same tactics, look into your eyes smile at you, listen to you, ask you, you know, if you were happy, just, you know, basically, you know, everything people want, except on like an exaggerated level. And so a lot of, a lot of women were brought into the cult through this, this, uh, form of proselytizing. I don't know what you call it. You said aunties. Oh, all the, all the adults. So basically the founder, 
uh, I believe it was a uh, 1970. Oh, it must have been like 72. Mm-hmm. 72 or sometime around that. He wrote um, a letter called One Wife. And basically what he was doing, he disbanded traditional families. So he said mm-hmm. that mothers and fathers and children and grandparents, all of that was selfish. And that's what the system did. And so we were one family. We were one wife. Everybody was married to everybody. So we adopted the terms uncle and auntie. The founder was father, daddy, or grandpa. And we we used those terms. And we weren't supposed to treat our children or our siblings any better than anybody else. We were all one big family. And so we called them aunties and uncles. No individual identities or relationships to... Mm -hmm have um, anything writing over the church. Yeah. And they would actively break up families. Uh, So if you were married and had six kids, they'd break you up. Three of the kids would go with the dad and then they would remarry him or he would remarry somebody else. And then she would go be remarried to somebody else. So what happens is if one of those people becomes dissatisfied with the cult and wants to leave, the other ones don't want to leave. It's very rare that, you know, for some reason, the adults just freaking love this thing. Uh, but, you know, you would have people that were dissatisfied and wanted to leave. So they would try to leave and get their other children and the cult would hide them. They would take you to secret locations, get you to another country as fast as possible. It was very difficult to leave. So that was another reason to, you know, have you not be too connected so they can like connect you wherever they wanted. We were just piece chess pieces and just moved from place to place. And it wasn't just the children. The adults also were treated that way. The only difference is they, you know, they had more knowledge of the outside world and they chose to be there. But other than that, they were also pawns in this, in this scheme. Yeah. And the thing is, it's so easy to blame, but it's it's the living slippery slope fallacy you know if somebody let's say they get recruited into something and they start doing it for a while as things go wrong they don't just say oh my god i was so dumb i'm such a sucker no you go oh no well it's really this and you you don't really want to acknowledge a giant mistake and then if you have children and you bring them into it, it it's it gets more and more and more difficult yeah and yeah, that had to be a big challenge. Plus, from what I understand, like they didn't really let you get any kind of education growing up outside yeah. of uh, whatever was being fed to you from uh, whatever uh, the Mo paper or was it the Mo, Mo letters. letters and yeah, all that, of that was that was our education. Um, the founder said nothing over sixth grade, but we barely did that. I know I don't, I did not get more than a third grade education at all. Um, You know, especially us older ones, like we were just, there was no time to do schoolwork. Like you had to work all the time. So there was, Mm -hmm. you know, you kind of, you know, learned how to read, you know, in a hurry. (laughs) Reading was mandatory. You did have to know how to read. And uh, different families were better at, at giving a little more education than others. Um, and the younger, after the big worldwide persecution and education became an issue and the world started paying more attention, they started trying to school the kids more. Uh, and you said worldwide persecution. You see, I love hearing your training coming out. It's, but no, and that's why I bring it up because I'm sure you were taught that you were being persecuted by the world and it was more like more like worldwide notice maybe yes yes <laughs> um yes they they called it we had a persecution complex big time um so in the it was kind of the late 90s or midnight it was probably more mid 90s different countries around the world started taking notice and communes were raided and you know what's really funny is that the cult they kind of touted this uh, as a win because the children were returned to the parents for the most part. Uh, in England, it was a little bit of a different story, but like in Australia and Argentina, uh, the children were returned because they couldn't find anything. So they were mm-hmm. like, oh, well, this we won, we won. Well, after that happened, 
uh, things inside of the cult became drastically different. We all of a sudden started having rights and started, uh, they stopped all the sexual abuse. They stopped all, a lot of the physical abuse. So well, he died too, right? I mean, he yeah, died it was right around that time. Yeah, it was kind of a storm of a bunch of things, uh, or okay. a cocktail of of different things. Um, Lord Justice Ward uh, was the judge that was in charge of the case in England, and he he admitted that the cult was responsible for our abuse sexually, and admitted that we were not properly educated. He did end up saying that, oh, I believe them when they tell me they're not going to do it anymore. Well, that's not how mm. the law works. So I don't know how he did this. He, he made them promise that they were going to stop everything and they promised him they would. And uh, and they they fulfilled some of those promises. Not going to lie. Um, but the judge actually he gave custody to the state and allowed the child to live with the mom. He did not give the child back to the mother. He was still a ward of the well, state. He just got to live with the mother under supervision. Oh, that's a good move. That, that's a better move, actually. Because How at so? least there's some... Um, if he just gave the kid back and then wrote it off, that's one thing. But by saying, oh, no, 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 you can stay there, yeah. but you're going to be checked on. You're going to have authorities coming in and out mm -hmm. and right th that's better i'm not saying it's perfect i'm just right. saying it's better than just saying okay yeah go on go with them go, yeah go, go with god Goodbye. right what happened in australia was they uh they pulled hundreds of children away from four different communes um i could be wrong about the numbers of the communes but it was it was over 100 children and when they couldn't find stress in the children they returned them and within days all the communes were disbanded they were empty they had just left, which we yeah, are so makes good sense. at. Now, let me get some chats in. I was very bad with doing that last time. And we've already um, talked about it to a degree without getting salacious. Um, one obvious question. Greg didn't see the first part, but what makes it a sex cult versus a regular cult? Um, most cults, they have the leadership ends up having a harem. So there's almost always some kind of sexual exploitation when it comes to a cult. The difference with our cult is that sexual exploitation was done um, on a massive scale over everybody. It was part of our doctrine. It was part of our everyday life. Uh, that's the difference. It, it you know, just like, um, you know, you'll have a yoga, a yoga cult and they do yoga every day. Well, Ours was uh, very much a sexual cult. They pimped out members, essentially. I'm what sorry? The members were pimped out. or, or uh, No, not out. just that. Well, for a time, the adult women were prostitutes. Um, I've heard tales of some teenage girls being uh, sent about, but I personally never witnessed that. Um, they were encouraged to have sex with children, they were uh, made to do sexual sharing, which is kind of a form of uh, non-consensual swinging. You're, they were put on schedules. There was a lot of nudity. They made videos where they had women and children dancing sexy, and they would train us how to, how to do that. And the founder in the, his preachings was constantly talking about sex, sharing his sexual dreams, his sexual fantasies. Uh, yeah, it was, it was heavy in the sex, but it was also equally as heavy in the apocalyptic views and that the world was going to end and we were all going to be martyrs. The, right. when, you have no when you have no television and no, uh, close relationships and no freedom, there's a lot of time for indoctrination. So we had a lot going on, but it is uh, the largest sexual cult in history. And, um, but I, I always feel so kind of uncomfortable when the focus is I on know, I don't want to go into the details. I oh, did put well, a not link. Because of, not because of that. I'm uncomfortable when the focus is solely on the sexual abuse because there were so many things in the cult that were so much worse than the sexual abuse. And, mm. you know, you can say it's because we were programmed to be comfortable with that. Uh, that only goes so far. We were sent to camps 
in which there was very harsh physical punishments, hard labor. Um, That's coming They would up, tape our mouths shut. Okay, well, we can get into that later. There's just no, we're, things yeah, a lot. We were going to talk about the camp breakdown in this um, segment, so okay. definitely, okay. definitely want to get to that. Okay, okay. Yeah, no, I, I definitely. Uh, let me see. Ziggy shrugged. Maybe a question for later. Did you see any evidence of mental illness starting in any of the children from uh, this type of behavior? Yes. Yes. Um, and the the sad thing was when mental illness was discovered, it was seen in the cult as demon possession. So children who wet the mm. bed were highly punished and beaten. Children who uh, were delusional or had nightmares. Um, I was actually one of those children that had many, many nightmares. But again, I was very observant of the adults and how they reacted. And I would never tell them because the kids who did, it was, you know, they would get punished. So it was not a safe place to have any kind of mental illness. And a lot of mental illness was brought upon us from all of the abuse and, uh, lack of love and lack of uh, attention and care. So yes, it's it's a real problem. And, and we have a very high suicide rate for people that have gotten out. And uh, a lot of people struggle with not only suicidal ideation, but also just with suicide. It's uh, well, actually the um, adopted son of um, the leader, David Berg, his son, Rick Rodriguez, who was being groomed to take over, and there's a lot of material on him, did get out and wound up doing a murder-suicide Yeah, in the yeah. Um, early 2000s. So, I yeah. mean, it, and I mean, he... 2002, I think. Yeah, he was the direct son of the current leader, yeah. I mm-hmm. guess you would call her. Yeah. I, I don't even know. But, yeah, and there, there's so much stuff on this this cult and I, I did put a link to like a, a collection of people who have put stuff together so you yeah. can see all the horrible material you could ever want to yeah forewarning it's disturbing yeah it, it's very hard now um there actually a documentary just came out it's a five-part series on discovery plus and so mm. far up to date it is the best series that has ever been done I do not speak on it, but you see a little clip of me in one of the camps. So, (laughs) but I know all the people that are on it. Um, They're friends of mine. I lived with some of them in communes. I know what they're saying is true, but it is such a well done documentary. And the way that they did it, they, they literally transported you to all the different countries Mm. and the detectives are showing you like where these different communes were and then also just looking at the aliases of different people they're trying to catch and like how complicated it is, but it really shows you, um, it gives you an idea of the scale of this conspiracy. Like this was massive. There has not been a group this big, this successful that hurt and used so many children and people. The adults were also hurt as well. You know, this is, it's, it's on a massive scale and it was successful because they are still around today. They are still benefiting off of the money that us children worked to give them, that our moms worked to give them. They are still benefiting from that. So I would say, go watch it. It's called Children of the Cult. It is fantastic. I I cried a lot, um, but it is well done. So if you are curious, maybe go watch that before you go to Uh, (laughs) xfamily.org because it'll be a little bit of a buffer. Yeah. Uh, cause the other stuff is pretty dark. Um, but, but you really hear the stories. They follow four different people. Um, and their stories from beginning to end is, it's great. So yeah, big plug for that. Cool. And, uh, Frank Barron wants to know if anyone kept secret diaries. I don't know how you could, but. Ah, oh, Frank, how did you know? <laughs> um, I did and I got in huge trouble for it. Uh, so every, every night we, um, we were part of a, the cult of confession. It was very much every day you confessed. So we had things called OHRs, which was, it was called an open heart report. And every evening you tattled on yourself 
you tattled on people around you, you said everything that you did all the way down to whether you used the bathroom and what it was like, what the consistency of it was. Like they wanted to know literally everything. Mm-hmm. And I was uh, very resentful of this. I did not like it. it. It I had to come up with lies every single night. <laughs> And uh, so I I got a little diary and I started writing in it at night and I would I would write them at the same time. So I'd be writing my OHR and then I would be writing my secret thoughts and things I did in the other diary. And I mean, I guess teenagers just don't think. And when I got sent to the camp, I brought it with me and I had hidden it. And I knew that my bags were going to be searched. I just didn't realize I thought I could get away with it and I, and I did not. And it was bad. Uh, but yeah, there's, there are books, there are, there's so much out there. It's just for so long, everybody has wanted to put their head in the sand about this cult. There's not a lack of information. There's not a lack of stories. There's not a lack of evidence. It's all there. It's just, it's not really fun. You know, it's not one of the fun, you know, where it's all wrapped up in a nice bow and the leader went to jail and it's, it's, it's a heavy, dark story and it continues to be a heavy, dark story. Um, I, I do think that there is light at the end of the tunnel and I like talking to people about that as well, but there's no lack of information. So if you just start digging, you'll find all kinds of stories out there. There's, oh yeah. It, it's yeah. a bottomless pit. So. They even acknowledge it. The organization itself acknowledges, yeah. Oh, uh, there are some things that may have been <laughs> done by, well, you know, we couldn't be everywhere at once and you never know what's going. Yeah. Except um, they were, they were, we were, we were writing. They were, they had leaders that would come and their job was to travel around and inspect and make sure everybody was doing what they were supposed to be doing. So so on to inspections and we deliberately stopped. So then you would start this time. Um, let's talk about the camp. Okay. Yep. Um, oof, I just got a big knot in my stomach right now. <laughs> um, so they started with camps around the world when, uh, when I was around 12 And these were meant to be sort of a fun giving ourselves over to the cults type of thing where we were going to get to meet a lot of other kids our age. Uh, So we were all very excited about it. We went to these camps. I went to one in Japan with my brother and it was uh, heavy, heavy indoctrination. And um, we were made to give ourselves to the leader, give ourselves to the cults. We were told that now we were adults, now that we have been through this training, and we were ready to now be used. Give yourself to the leader? Give yourself to the cult? What, what does that exactly mean? Dedicate your life, everything to the cult. No wishes, wants, desires. You are not a child. You are not an individual. You are now a soldier of God. You are in the army. We sang songs about it. Like it was an, you know, an army boot camp training camp, but more psychological than physical. And uh, so we were just, we were supposed to leave all of our wishes and hopes and dreams behind anything that we might've any doubts, um, any relying on our parents for their dedication and loyalty. We were now supposed to dedicate ourselves. And, and once we did, we were considered adults So instead of at the end of the camp sending us back to our parents, we were then trafficked and we were sent from commune to commune and we were just slaves. We were slaves to the cult in whatever way that they wanted. And we had agreed to that. We said, yes, that's what we're going to do. So it took a couple years and slowly that indoctrination started wearing off and we all started rebelling And not in any huge ways, but just little ways, you know, me writing a diary, people sneaking candy, um, saying out loud some doubts they may have. And so when they realized that that was not no longer working, they decided like, okay, we need to do a real camp. We need to, we need to really like get these kids under control. 
And so they sent set camps up. There were two um, kind of like two sections in the camps. One was for what they called the detention teens. And then the other was for like just kids that needed to get reindoctrinated. Um, the detention teens definitely had it the worst. They were, my brother was taken to that and, uh, they had to do hard manual labor. They were in solitary confinement. They had to fast. They were beaten. They were, uh, made to confess over and over again. I was not, I just know the stories from what they have said. Most of them have come out and cannot speak about it. Uh, the rest of us, very similar, a lot of indoctrination, a lot of fear, a lot of duct tape over our mouths and signs. They, uh, they made little paper clip machines that would hold your, with rubber bands to hold your mouth open. So you'd smile all the time. If you had a bad attitude, um, they would do horrible, humiliating things like make, make you smell somebody's feces, um, to humiliate them in front of everybody. They would do public beatings and we all had to sit around and watch. And that was terrifying. They would do exorcisms. It was, it was a year and a half of hell. And um, it wasn't like we were being beaten every single day or all of us all the time. It was the right amount. It was calculated. It was institutionalized abuse. We were kept in fear. We had walls around the compound with barbed wire and glass. Uh, we had armed guards guarding the inside of the the walls. Um, rumor has it they were there for our protection. I thought it was a really good deterrent to make me not want to climb over the walls because uh, they had machine guns. So um, it was that was the time that that was kind of my coming of age story. And that's actually what I'm writing my book about is going to be about that year and a half. Um, oh. I was 15, 16. Okay. And uh, that's when they not only broke me, but they also kind of awakened something in me. And it was, I think it was the most rebellion that I ever felt. And I came to the realization that while the outside world might be our enemy, that they were also my enemy. And after that, it was never the same for me. They, they went too far. And, you know, we had been subjected to all kinds of things before that. We were, we could tolerate quite a bit, you know, in our young lives. We were well, well trained, well trained to take pain, well trained to endure, well trained to smile. But when they did these camps, and they, they were camps around the world. It wasn't just, I was in the Philippines. It was called the Jumbo um, it, uh, they just went, they went too far, even for them. And this is the part of the story that does not get told, um, because a lot of us are not here anymore. A lot of them have, um, committed suicide or died young, uh, oh, wow. heart failure, lung failure, drug overdoses, you know, so, I want to tell that story. I want people to know uh, they claim that they did not engage in institutionalized abuse. And I was there. I saw it with my own eyes. I witnessed it. I felt it. I saw the people around me. I loved endure it. And uh, it's not okay. And I don't want this to never happen again. I want us to know what to look for as a society I want us to think, you know, to understand that this is real. Education is so important. You know, those who don't know about the past uh, were doomed to repeat it. And so if we don't speak up and they could get away with so much, other people are going to take note and they're going to be like, oh, I could start my own cult as long as I train them well and bring them overseas, you know, or whatever. They can take these tactics and use them. And so I want people to know that this is real. It's not a fun and game story. It's not, it's, it's real. And let's, let's work on not having this happen again. What happened with your brother? Like, why did he get sent to them? Well, we, we can go to that too, but you know, I, 
I want, is he okay? Did he escape? What, you know, yeah. So he, he actually left, uh, he got away from the cult, uh, before I did. And he had a very hard road when we got out, there was, you know, we, most of us had no place to go. He struggled with homelessness and was not educated. He's had to pull himself up by the bootstraps. Um, he cannot talk about this stuff, but he's uh, he just bought himself a house and uh, we're, we're right. still in contact. He's probably going to listen to this. <laughs> he listened to the last one and uh, he uh, he thought it was really good. He was he was happy. I'm talking even if he doesn't want to. Sure. Um, but yeah, what was what was done to him was. I mean, I still feel to this day it should have been me, not him, because I was the he believed all the way. Mm. I kind of believed, but I was full of lies and manipulation. And I was like, eh, I was naughty. Yeah, I was yeah. just bad. I was just bad. And uh, yeah, maybe I have now, a little survivor's guilt there. While we're on that, because you had just said earlier, and this part fascinates me, that they push you too far and essentially they flip the switch. But you didn't exactly leave it as soon as no. you're done. So what I would like to know, and this could be important for other people in terms of survival or whatever else. How did you go about interacting with everybody and leading a duplicitous life, which essentially you were doing? You, you had one mindset that I'm getting the hell out of here. So how were you able to control yourself? deal with the further abuse, but also maintain your internal freedom. Yeah. And that's a very loaded question, but I don't know. Yeah, it's a, it's a good one. It's an important one. Um, I do think that there's a misconception that once you realize that um, everything is a lie, that you're instantly free and you're going to go run through some wildflower fields and, you know, drink a bottle of wine and laugh, you know, and it's, it's not like that. Um, one, it's actually worse, isn't it? It's even worse because you know. You, you see it's, it's a lie and now you have to live it. Everything after that is difficult. You know, is it worth it? Yes. Is life amazing? Absolutely. But it is so difficult once you realize that it's not real. Everything that you lived for was a lie. And then <laughs> when you get out and you realize you're free and you don't understand what that means. You don't understand how the world works you don't even really know how to think. You don't know what you like or don't like. You don't know what you want. And you're constantly amazed that you're not dead. So it's it's a long road of recovery. Um, I know right away when um, in the Philippines, it, it all, a lot of the details are going to be in the book, so I'm not going to do too many spoilers. But when I was broken... Um, Basically, I, I lost memory for a few months. I don't remember what happened during that time. I remember coming out of it. And um, not long after that, uh, we were sent out of, the, out of the jumbo. And I was sent you know, back to uh, the States to be part of uh, a fake media home. It was a fake commune set up to trick the media. And so I was part of that. Uh, so, yeah, the plot thickens. <laughs> I have some responsibility for lying to the public. Um, I do. And I, I, I've hmm. worked my way through that. But, um, but right away when I, when I came to, I started rebelling in ways that I never would have before. Hmm. I, um, when you left a commune and you went to another commune, they sent uh, basically uh, a, like a write-up of you. Dossier or report. Yeah. yeah. And so I took those of me and my brothers and I ripped them up on the airplane so that the next commune could not get them and then lied about what happened to them. So that was my first big act of rebellion. And then it was a lot of little acts of rebellion after that. Um, there was... While I didn't trust them any longer, I looked at the outside world and I knew I couldn't survive out there. I just, that indoctrination of that it's not a safe place and that you're not educated 
and that you can't sure. live out here, it's stuck. And there were so many cautionary tales that they had told us. Anybody who died or was murdered, it was made a big deal about, look, another person left and now they're dead. And so that fear remained. That fear never actually left me. Uh, I couldn't get rid of it. So I kind you of still just have it a little. Yes. Yeah. It's still kind of part of my psyche. I'm still amazed uh, when good things happen and nothing bad happens. I'm like, oh, okay. Okay. <laughs> it's kind of fun too, though. <laughs> well, there you go. You're it's constantly like... surprised. <laughs> yeah. It's, and you had mentioned before um, how you live vicariously through your children and that you're kind of like a big kid with them. And is it possible that that's essentially you were stunted and now oh, you're yes. getting to celebrate your childhood with your children in a way? You know, we were we were definitely stunted. And they know this about, you know, abuse victims that you emotionally are stunted uh, when abuse happens. And so we were basically never allowed to develop and grow. So when I got out of the cult, I had to learn how to start thinking for myself and learn the complexity of human emotions that was that was very difficult for me uh, to grasp and to accept in myself and then accept in others. I think had I not had kids and like watch them develop their personalities, it probably would have been even a, a longer road for me. But it was really neat to see them like develop likes and dislikes. Uh, them having a bad day and then them having a good day. And, you know, uh, just the humans are so complex and we have a lot going on. And uh, that was never something that we were allowed to explore. And so uh, in some ways, I mean, I, I'm not like immature or <laughs> I'm not a retard no. as far as I know. I, know. I can't say that. Oh, no, I'm sorry. <laughs> Delete oh, that. Yeah. Delete that. Um, yeah, I, I I don't know. It's I think it's more just it's not you're stunted, but it's not permanent. Mm -hmm. So you come out and or, you know, or abuse stops and you have to kind of start from the bottom and work your way up. So that's what I've been doing. And I've had a lot of therapy. I've also decided, and I, ha I have to make myself decide to forgive, to not be bitter and not hold on to bitterness. And um, that's a road I don't want to go down. And that's a burden I don't want to bear. And there have been times where I have felt that consuming me. And, it, you know, I have to kind of climb my way out of that pit because I don't want that to be part of me. You know, they, they, took so much of my life away from me and I want to be in the now. I want to affirm life. I want to be happy and uh, life's always going to be throwing stuff at us. We've all been through stuff and we will all continue to be going through stuff. You know, I'm not alone in that. Um, but it, it takes time to heal and that is okay. It takes time to become a new person. It, it takes time to be yourself. And we all experience this when we change jobs or we move to a new country or a new city. When our children grow up, uh, there's so many times in life where we have a chance to kind of reinvent ourselves and ask ourselves, am I happy? Am I doing what I want? Do I want to do something new? And that's one of the beautiful things about being human and about being free. And I think a lot of times it's easy to kind of take that for granted. And even now, sometimes, I, you know, I've been free for so long that sometimes I'll feel that creeping in. And I'm like, oh, wait a minute. I have a choice. I could literally do something entirely different. So, yeah. Anyway. Well, perfect. And yeah, that is a, a great spot to close on. And um, important final question from the audience. When will your book be out? Uh, I'm currently shopping for a publisher and an editor. So uh, I don't know when. Um, it, it has proven to be a lot more difficult than I thought. I started out trying to write my entire life and mm -hmm. it was too much. And um, I had a couple editors quit on me because it was too dark. <laughs> 
And so uh, I decided to just go with one, you know, one, one year and a half of my life and uh, kind of go that route. So I'm, I'm redoing it. So, but as soon as it is out, I'll be telling everybody. So, yeah. Awesome. Well, Christina, thank you so much. And I know we'll be talking again, hopefully with the book in hand. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, I deeply, deeply appreciate it. And I'm, I congratulate you in your progress because I don't know that you'll ever be completely free of everything, but I think it's wonderful that you're out there, you're getting the word out, you're living and setting an example that you can keep going. Yeah. And being free of it is not the goal. That's, that's never, well, no, no. I mean, you know, (laughs) I'm, I'm a human, but I'm proud of all of us survivors. I'm so proud of, Everybody that is speaking out, I'm not the only one. I hope everybody goes and watches the documentary. And I've been on a documentary and done a lot of media, but uh, I definitely recommend watching this last one. It's really good. Well, awesome. And I, I will try to find that and see if I can get it in here. I hate this. Children of the part. cult. I know. Okay. I know. Oh. Actually, uh, secret. They have uh, it's one week free right now. You can get a subscription and you can watch it this week. Okay. Well, everybody, hurry up. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks so much for listening. And if you would like even more content and community, please consider joining my locals at unstructured.locals.com. And you can always find out more about me and my shows and everything I do at erichunley.com. See you next time.